Good morning, Church of Beloved. How are you today? Good morning. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I had the opportunity to preach downtown, and um, if I was to be honest with you, the last couple of weeks, they've been, they've been hard, they've been stressful, they've been tiring for me. Uh, the first thing that happened was my younger son, Matthew, he got this uh, hand, foot, and mouth disease. That was pretty nasty. You break out in these sores everywhere. You got bumps. It's very painful. He's not yet two, so he can't really talk, so he's just miserable. And yeah, you like, have all these sores. Uh, and uh, when we were at the apple orchard, Isaiah like, picked up this gourd, like one of those gourds that has all the bumps on it. He's like, look, it looks like Matthew. Um, also, I'm sure you guys are aware that, um, you know, the Chicago Public Schools, the Teachers Union, they're on strike. And so that has um, been kind of challenging because I've had to kind of find ways to uh, keep my seven-year-old Isaiah entertained by doing really boring things like going to the apple orchard. Um, but uh, one particularly stressful and difficult day, you know, I was uh, meeting up with um, David Otua, who's the associate pastor at Church of Beloved Wicker Park, and we were talking, and it was good. I was just kind of sharing with him about how I'd kind of been troubled and down lately, and then uh, he was hearing me out, and he's like, well, Brian, what are you going to do after lunch? I was like, well, I'm going to go watch a movie by myself because I'm an introvert. That's what I really like to do. He's like, okay. He's like, what movie are you going to see? I was like, well, I think I'm going to go watch Joker. And he's like, brah, you cannot go and watch that movie today. You are in no emotional, uh, you are in no emotional state to watch that movie. It's so dark and depressing and glooming that it might just kind of throw you um, over, the, um, over, the, over the edge. And so I did what I often do when a bright, young, talented, godly uh, pastor gives me advice. I ignored him. And so I went ahead and I went to see this movie. How many of you guys have seen it? Like, not that many, okay. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's interesting because you guys know Joker. He's like the villain in the Batman comics. And it's a movie, like an origin story for a villain. It's the first one I've kind of seen like that. And it's a movie where you emphasize and you actually kind of root for an evil person. It shows you how he became the way that he was, and by the end of the movie, he's doing all these terrible things, and you're cheering for him. You're cheering for the bad guy. And it's not just the Joker movie. Um, you know, there's a TV show that was out a couple years ago called Breaking Bad, and that was just this slow march for the audience. It was a slow march into empathizing and getting into the shoes and understand a villain, somebody who was murderous and who... I mean, he was, a, he was a drug manufacturer. He was evil. You go back and look at The Sopranos. But this idea of rooting for the bad guy, I think it's a relatively new phenomenon. One of the most famous and brilliant postmodern minds, W.I. Ralph, he summed it up when he said, I'm bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one else I'd rather be than me. You guys totally missed that. That's Wreck-It Ralph. It's not, it's not a... Um, so it's even made its way into children's movies. More and more we find ourselves, sorry, cheering for the bad guys. I think it points to the fact that we don't really believe in good and evil anymore. Because if we really did believe in evil, we wouldn't always being try, we wouldn't always spend so much effort in trying to understand the evil. And if there's no evil, then what is good? 
Because in the absence of absolute good and evil, then everything kind of becomes relative. Truth is replaced with opinion, and what is there really left for us to hold on to? Today's passage, the one that Pam just read, it makes it very clear that the Bible has something very, very different to say about absolute good and evil. Most of the times when you're preaching a sermon, it makes sense to kind of focus on the good and have that kind of contrasted with the evil. But this being the longest passage in all the scriptures about demon possession and exorcism, I think it makes sense to kind of do the reverse today. So today we'll spend a lot of time actually talking about evil with the hope that by doing so we'll understand what is good. Okay, so we'll have four points for today. The the existence of evil, the residence of evil, the authority of evil, and finally the victory over evil. So the first thing that we'll talk about is the existence of evil. To give you guys a little bit of context, today's passage actually finds its beginning in Mark chapter 4 when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, let us go over to the other side. Let us go over to the other side. And to us, that's no big deal. It's like somebody asks you, do you want to go out on my boat on Lake Michigan for the day? We'd be like, yeah, that sounds great. But to his disciples, the other side of the Sea of Galilee meant an area dominated by evil people, evil gods, and unclean and pagan people. The disciples, the disciples, they begin this journey and soon find themselves in this terrible storm. And as they struggle against the waves, they think that they're going to die. And they look at Jesus, who's just laying down and sleeping, and they wake him up with this question, do you not even care that we are perishing? Don't you care, Jesus? We're going to die, and you don't care. So Jesus wakes up from his slumber, and he rebukes the winds and the waves. He calms the storm, and he showed his disciples that he had power over the forces of nature. Right, then we come to today's passage. After this stormy night at the sea, the ship finally finds land. And what is the first thing that these disciples see when they get out of the boat? The passage says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Can you imagine what is going through the minds of these poor disciples as their ship lands? They had just been through this terrible storm. They were probably still uneasy. They were probably hoping for just some quiet time so they could process what had just happened. What horror they must have felt when out of the tombs comes this crazy, bloody, naked, demon-possessed man who walks straight up to them. They probably actually thought about getting back in the boat and pushing back off. They probably thought to themselves, first the storm and now this demon-possessed guy. Are you kidding me? One thing after another, what terrible luck. But it wasn't terrible luck. Bumping into this person was no accident. Jesus had shown his disciples through the storm that he had power over forces of nature, but here in today's passage, he was going to show them that he also had power and authority over the supernatural forces of evil. No, this demon-possessed man had a divine appointment with Christ. You might stop me here and be like, hold on, are you, are you serious? 
I'm an educated person. I went to school. I believe in the scientific theory. Do you really expect me to believe all this stuff about a demon-possessed man? Do you actually believe in demons? Isn't it primitive? Isn't it basic? Didn't people in the biblical times just attribute all physical, emotional, and psychological problems with demon possession? Right? I can see how you would think that, but I would suggest that that's an overly simplistic way of looking at this. And I would argue that the biblical writers actually had a complex, complex view of evil. If you were to continue in Mark 5, what would you find? You would find a woman who's been ill for a very, very, very long time. She spent basically all of her money and she's seen all of these doctors and yet she still is not cured of this medical problem. And if you continue to read in Mark 5, you would read about a little girl who is so sick that she was near death. She actually does die. And neither time, in either of those cases, does Mark talk about demon possession at all. Further, if you look back in Matthew chapter 4, it says this. They brought him, they brought Jesus, listen to this, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. See, see, the writers of the Bible knew the difference between emotional, psychological, physical problems and demonic ones. And this man, in today's passage, they could have said that he was crazy. They could have said that he had psychological problems. But no, they didn't say that he was physically sick or anything like that. They said that he was demon-possessed. They knew the difference. And the answer for this man is not a pill or a therapist. The answer for this man was a savior. But when you're talking about the existence of evil, you don't have to just look at today's passage to find it. You can look out into the world. You can look all around you. You can read the news. You can see evil in this world in so many different ways. There's a story about W.H. Auden, and for those of you who aren't familiar with him, I would say that uh, with, with Yeats and T.S. Eliot. He's probably one of my favorite three uh, poets of, of the 20th century. And he's like, in a lot of ways, he's kind of a hopeless romantic. Right? He, he wrote stuff like, if equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. That's, that's pretty sweet. You know, if, you, if you're not a romantic person, you should, you should read some W.H. Auden and you should memorize it. Anyway, so W.H. Auden is this great man. He grew up in the, in the Anglican church, but he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. He didn't believe in spiritual things. He didn't believe in supernatural forces of good and evil. He thought basically that anything in this world could be solved and addressed by human endeavor and progress. That all changed for him when World War II broke out. Auden went to watch a comedy, a film, in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And it was in a German uh, side of town, kind of like Chinatown, but this was like Germantown. And before the movie started, there was this newsreel about uh, what was going on in Europe, the Nazi invasion of Poland, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was filmed from a Nazi, a German point of view. And Auden was shocked 
when he saw ordinary, supposedly harmless Germans in the audience shouting, kill the Poles. Kill the Polish people. See, these were ordinary German immigrants who were under no influence, no coercion, coercion to support the Nazis in this evil invasion. And Auden later wrote this, I wondered then why I react as I did against this denial of every humanistic value. The answer brought me back to the church. In life, in this world, there are some things that are so horrendous and so atrocious that I find it hard to believe that there isn't something evil in this world at work. This evil can't just be explained away by selfish people doing selfish things. It can't be explained away by saying, oh, I think it's just a misunderstanding. It can't be explained away by it's just the unequal distribution of resources and equity. Look around this world and you will easily see the existence of evil. And then the question becomes, how do normal, ordinary people end up participating in horrible, atrocious things? How do people commit such evil? In Auden's case, remember, it's, it's normal, ordinary people advocating for the slaughter of innocent Poles. So how exactly does evil take hold of everyday people that are no different than you or me? And that brings us to the second point, the residence of evil. And let's, let's revisit this passage from the beginning. And, and think about these people in this area who had tried to restrain this man from injuring himself. This, this might be viewed as an act of mercy, a sensible measure taken to protect someone from self-harm. We know that sometimes that's probably a good idea. And it might be fair to say that they don't hate this man, that they're not trying to be cruel to this man. In fact, at the end of the passage, Jesus tells this man to go tell who? To tell his friends about his restoration. This man had friends in the community. There were people who cared about him. And so this demon-possessed man's friends had tried and failed to exert power over him and to control this condition that gripped him. So what did they do? What did they do when they had run out of ideas? They let him wander. They couldn't help him, so they just left him alone. They thought to themselves, wow, these, these demons are haunting that guy. Poor guy. They thought, wow, I, I feel like we tried to help, and there's, there's not really much more that we can do. His friends gave up on him. Likewise, at some point, as a society, we define an otherness to evil, don't we? Somewhere in the inner reaches of our subconscious, we're just glad that it isn't us. We breathe a sigh of relief that we think that there's safety in separation and distance. And this leads us to what? To abandon these people. When we think that we've done enough, we leave people alone and, and seek the safety and stability of a demonless life. Our knowledge of where the demons are located and who they are possessing gives us some false sense that we are secure. We think because other people are haunted by demons, somehow we're safer or we're in a better spot 
because we are not. But bear with me, I think there's some significance in the fact that this unclean spirit says that his name is Legion. To give you some t- context, a legion was a, was a, was a Roman army uh, fighting unit. At, uh, during Caesar's time, it was 3,500 soldiers. Uh, later in the Roman Empire, it was 8,000. But whatever it is, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of soldiers. And what he's saying to Jesus is there's a lot of demons inflicting this man. But also, I think most of Mark's audience would have thought that the evil in this world was the Roman legions themselves. They would, think, they would have said that Rome was evil. Rome was the devil. Rome, the Romans were the pagans who were occupying the Holy Land. And both the disciples and the readers of the Gospels, they would have wanted, they would have expected for Jesus to rid themselves of the evil that they saw in this Roman occupation. And they would have thought to themselves, that's how you confront evil. That's how you do it. You recognize the evil that's out there and you say, scram, get out of here. But I think when the unclean spirit said that his name was Legion, I think it means this. I think it means that the darkness isn't across the sea on the other side. The shadows aren't just other groups, other religions, other peoples. The evil isn't just out there somewhere, but it's in here. The residence of evil is not just out there in the world, but it's inside of you and it's inside of me. And you could stop me right right here and you could say, are you kidding me? I'm not demon-possessed. And if your image or understanding of demon possession is what you've seen in The Exorcist, I would say that's probably true, like no one's heads are spinning around or whatever. But some commentators would suggest that this word demon-possessed is better translated into demonized or under the influence of the devil. And you could say, well, that's splitting hairs, maybe. But do you also know that in other places in the scriptures, it says this, in Ephesians 4, it says that when you're angry, you give an opportunity to the devil. 1 Timothy 3 says that when you are conceited, you can fall under the influence of the evil one. James 3 says that when you're given to false teaching and doctrine, or when you're even jealous or selfish, you're giving into the devil. And I'd venture to say that it's not just when you're jealous or selfish or angry when you're giving a foothold to the devil. I'm saying it's not just those times when you are giving him influence over your life. But I would suggest that it's any time that you choose anything other than God to be your source of value or joy or purpose in this life. Look, straight up, no one ever decides at the beginning that they're going to fall under the influence of the devil. No one decides in the beginning that they're going to let themselves succumb to evil, to make themselves miserable, isolated, alone, or a prisoner in this world. If you guys remember the story of Faust, right? That he, 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 he always, whatever kind of version that, you've, that you're familiar with, but it's about a guy who wants more power or more knowledge or more money or love and he makes his deal with the devil because he sees that thing in front of him and he says, that's what I want. Only later does he realize the misery that he's brought upon himself by making this deal 
with the evil one. And the man in today's passage was the same way. He didn't turn into that demon-possessed man overnight. It happened over time. And likewise, when you choose something in this world other than God, whether it's a romantic relationship or your career, whatever it might be, when you say, this is the thing, not God, but this is the thing that's going to make me happiest, the most satisfied, the most whole in this life, then just like the man in this story, you're going to feel like you have superhuman strength, at least in the beginning, at least for a while. If you get into a new romantic relationship, if that's the thing that you say is going to be my joy and my success and my, and, 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 and my satisfaction in this world, then the beginning of those relationships, you guys have been in them, it feels every need that you could possibly have. That person makes you so happy. They do whatever you want. Partly because they're insecure, but, but, but that's just how the beginning of relationships are. But it's when that person starts to let their real selves show, when they start, stop doing everything that you want, when they start to do things that you don't like, that's when you are shocked to find yourself to be jealous or controlling or possessive. Or that thing in your life you choose is your career. If you say, this is what's going to make me whole in this world, and if you dedicate yourself, if you give yourself to that thing, then you're going to find a lot of satisfaction out of that thing in the beginning. If it's your career, that means you're going to work harder, you're going to try harder, you're going to work on the weekends and all that stuff, and it'll probably lead you to get promotions faster. It'll probably lead you to bigger bonuses and nicer promotions. But at a certain point, that's not going to be enough. When some other hotshot comes into your office and they start outdoing you, and quickly you'll find yourself upset, frustrated, but maybe even considering to do some unethical things that you would have never thought that you were capable of doing. And this is the way that evil works in our lives. I know people who have lost not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of dollars at a, at a casino. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I guarantee you, those people never thought that first time they sat at the table, this is where it's going to end up. Same thing with pornography or drug addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is, it all starts as just one little taste, one shiny thing that you can grab with your hand. And it's only later that you realize how much your life is unraveled. One thing leads to another, and before you know it, you look at yourself in the mirror, and you don't even recognize the person in front of you anymore. You don't like the person who stares back at you. It'll be a person who is capable of doing things that you thought you would never do. It'll be a person who's capable of doing great evil. In this world, when we choose something other than God, the thing that we think is going to give us freedom. If it's anything other than God, it will be the thing that binds you. It will be your master. And you will cry out in anguish at the evil that resides in you and has overtaken your life. But then we look at this passage and we see Jesus encountering this evil, demon-possessed man 
And we see that he has authority over evil. You know, sometimes when we talk about spiritual battles and stuff like that, we incorrectly believe that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a struggle of equals, that it's like God and Satan kind of exchanging blows and going back and forth. But this passage tells us that's not the case at all. See, every pagan exorcism, it, 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 it gives into the superstition that you have to evoke a higher power. If you guys have seen some of these movies, they say things like, the power of Christ compels you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is he who commands you. Come out. And in verse 7, the interesting thing is that the evil spirit kind of tries this. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. He's actually trying to evoke God's name when imploring Jesus not to mistreat him. But Jesus is the only one, right, who doesn't evoke a higher power because he is the higher power. He doesn't have to call upon anybody anybody else to give him this power because he is that power. And you can see it throughout this passage. The demons know that they're overmatched. They know that they don't have any authority. From the beginning of this passage, they're on the defensive. They're begging and pleading with Jesus And finally, they ask Jesus for his permission. They say, if we're going to leave this man, can we at least stay in the region? And then the demons notice some pig herds grazing in the hillside, and in the passage it says, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That's weird, right? What is, what is going on here? What's going on with these pigs? And the answer is I'm not completely sure. Like, I've read a lot of commentaries, and, 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 and nobody's really sure. There's no consensus about what's going on with these pigs. Some people think that it was made up. They're like, this is just nonsense. Like, they actually, I, I, I read some website where this guy who, I don't know, understands agriculture really well, uh, he estimated the environmental impact that 2,000 dead pigs would have in a body of water. He's like, this is impossible. But I don't think uh, it was made up for the simple reason that it is so strange that it doesn't benefit Mark's story, and there's nothing like it elsewhere. Right? It's almost too strange to make up. Some other suggestions, or some people saying it's Jesus giving uh, the audience a vivid picture of uh, the fact that the demons really were cast out. It's not just pretend, and this guy didn't just find a way to get his life put back together, but it was like a visual image that people could see about these demons exiting the man. Um, some people says, say it's uh, Jesus showing the destructive nature of sin and evil. I think this one's better. They, they say that Jesus was showing how much one single life is worth. 2,000 pigs were a lot of money back then. And they think that Jesus was saying that all the money in the world is not worth the uh, worth of a uh, human soul. But I think, and this is just my opinion, I think Jesus was showing that defeating the evil spirit was costly. It was costly. It was costly to the townspeople because, again, that was a fortune back then. It probably created a shortage in the pork supply in the local area, and as a result, pork prices probably spiked. 
But more importantly, I think it points to the costly way that Jesus conquers evil. I think that the evil getting cast out of this man and into the pigs and the pigs rushing off to the death, I think it points to the cost for Christ. I think it points to substitutionary atonement. I think it points to the cross. Because evil, demons, sin, all of it, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just vanish. It has to die. Think about your own life. Think about when you've been wronged or you've been hurt. Maybe time helps a little. Maybe it helps to talk about it, but sometimes that makes it worse. But at a certain point, if you really want to overcome that evil or sin committed against you, if you really want to have victory over that sin, then at a certain point you have to die to yourself. You have to die to your sense of right and wrong. You have to die to what you think you deserve or what you're entitled to. And at some point, you realize that the person who hurt you actually didn't have good intentions. It wasn't a misunderstanding. There's nothing more to talk about. And there's no more groveling you can make this person do. And you're faced with this question, will you die to yourself? If you've ever been betrayed or or, or if you've ever been cheated on, then you know what I'm talking about. If you want that relationship to be reconciled, then at some point you're going to have to put it upon yourself and die to yourself if you want to overcome that evil. But here's the rub, church. We're not really good at dying to ourselves. You know, I'll be honest, like I've, um, you know, I don't know, maybe it's in the season that we're in as a church, but I've been having a lot of these church meetings and they've been critical. I'm getting a lot of critical and negative feedback, and that's fine. I, I welcome it, and that's cool. But sometimes in these meetings, believe it or not, people will come away, and they're like, Brian, you were really patient, patient and you were really gracious. I was like, that's cool. You know, and, and they'll be like, and, but the thing is, you know, if they see God through that, that's cool. But I, and, and I've been praying to be more patient and more gracious, and that's something that I've been working on. But if I can be honest with you, a lot of the times, I know it's really just a show. I really know, I really, I I know that it's not actually me dying to myself, but I'm really just moving around the hurt and the frustration and the pain because when I get home later that evening, I'll blow up at my kids over some stupid little thing. I'm not actually dying to myself, I'm just pretending like I am. And that's what we all do. That's what we all do when we've been hurt or we've been wronged or some evil has been committed against us. We like to think that we can die to ourselves, but we're really just not that good at, it, good at it. And that's why you're still hurt over things that have happened to you 5, 10, or 15 years ago. And that's why you still keep a record of wrongs, even though you've told that person that you've forgiven them over and over again. Because we think and pretend like we're dying to ourselves, but in actuality, we're just holding it in swallowing it up, and eventually all that hurt and pain and brokenness has to spill over. And that's why we need a Savior like Jesus. Because Jesus says to you, I will take that pain, that hurt, that brokenness, and I'll take that evil and that sin, and I'll place it upon myself, and I'll die to it on a cross. And you might sit here and be like, wait, Brian, are you saying like Jesus is like the pigs? Isn't that a terrible thing to say? Isn't that offensive? Maybe, but 
was Jesus not of great value like these pigs? Was he not innocent like these pigs? And was the evil that plagued this man cast upon these pigs? And were they not sacrificed in a similar way that Jesus was sacrificed when he went to the cross? Still not convinced, you might say, Brian, but you just can't say that Jesus is like the pigs. It's a terrible thing to say. They're animals, they're unclean. It's an offensive and undignified thing to say about Jesus. You're right. We're talking about the cross. We're talking about the cross, and there is nothing clean or dignified about what happened to Jesus at the cross. The Holy Son of God who came into this world who is so rich and full of mercy and love for the people was betrayed, tortured, mocked, spit upon, brutalized, and finally murdered at the cross. He did all that because that's how Jesus deals with evil. That's how Jesus has his victory over evil. To defeat the evil that resides in us, it had to go somewhere. So Jesus took it upon himself and died the most undignified, the most unclean death so that you and I could have victory over sin. Further, if you take a step back and look at this passage again, you have this, again, this demon-possessed man who is unclean, this man who is naked and abandoned, who is living amongst the tombs, who is covered in blood, who is in such pain that he was crying out in all hours. And by the end of the passage in verse 15, it says this, And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the man who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. They were afraid. How does that happen? How is this man delivered? How is he healed? How is he saved? Where did these demons go? It's not about the pigs. Ultimately, it's about Jesus who took his place, and ultimately, it's about the cross where Jesus died. At the cross, Jesus bore our sin and became unclean. At the cross, Jesus was naked and abandoned. At the cross, Jesus was covered in his own blood. At the cross, Jesus cried out in agony. At the cross, Jesus died for our sin and was driven into the tomb. And that's how the demon-possessed man was healed. That's how he ended up clothed and in his right mind. So church, do you see him doing that for you? If you are someone who is suffering under the evil in this world, then the good news for you is not to find yourself some pigs. The good news is to find yourself a savior in Jesus. And lastly, our our victory over evil. We all want victory over this evil in our lives that we experience. So the question is, what is keeping us from Jesus and claiming that victory? I'd say from the text, if you look at the people, I think we can relate it to two main characters and categories. Some of us think that we can't go to Jesus. And, so, and there are others who simply won't go to Jesus. I think there's good news for both. So for the people who think they can't go to Jesus, think about the man again inflicted with these unclean spirits. And I think it's kind of cool because in this story there's almost an echo of the prodigal father here, right? 
He sees Christ from afar and he runs to him. It's undignified and it is immediately. In the prodigal son parable, it is the love of a father who is waiting and watching for his son to return that sprinted towards restoration. But in today's passage, it's a man tortured and yet he, by demons, and yet he sprints to Jesus to the full restoration that he's been waiting for. So it's interesting because these demons, right, they had such power over this man that they could compel him to hurt himself with his own hands. The town feebly attempted to restrain him, from, restrain him for his own good, but they couldn't stop him. That's how much control these demons had over him. But what this man needed were not, was not restraints. He didn't need to be incapacitated from self-harm. What this man needed was freedom to fly towards his healing. You know, we often think that Demon possession is like these Halloween horror films where a person is totally possessed, is committing terrible acts without any volition or control, right? But this man, despite the legions of demons that were inflicting him, retained the agency to run to Christ, a person that the demons obviously found abhorrent. If the demons were in full control of this man and he was a lost cause as the town people assumed, then how could they not prevent him from getting to Christ? I think Romans 8 has an answer when Paul writes, For I am sure that neither life, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Similarly, I think what today's passage is saying is this. Christ's power is superior and he was calling the man to himself. The demons cannot stand between Christ's love and his beloved. So if you're here today and you're deeply troubled, if you're haunted by your own demons, and if there are things in your life that make you think that you cannot go to Jesus, the good news for you is that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what weight of darkness you might feel like you are under today, don't believe the lie that you can't return to Jesus, your Savior, because you retain the capacity to run to him, to sprint to the one who can heal you and restore you. It's good news. On the other hand, there's people here today who can probably relate to the townspeople who, upon assessing the damage or the costs, decide that they would not go to Jesus. They see the dead swine, not the healed man. They valued the pig more than the people. They were more focused on what Christ had cost them than how he had miraculously healed their friend. And the question to people who identify with this group is this. Are we familiarized with the idols that are so dear to us that we cannot reconcile real salvation when we are confronted with it? 
Are we so entrapped? Are we so, have we so given ourselves to the things of this world that we can't even, we don't even want Jesus when we see him? If Christ shows up and he disrupts everything that you understand and believe, if he performs the impossible and utterly concrete, not relocating but obliterating, just breaking all the rules, what is your response? Will we continue to cling to that at which some level we know will never satisfy us, that will never save us, forgoing Christ, the one who can satisfy and save us? But we'll be, will we be like these townspeople and simply send Christ away? Here's the thing. I think most of the time, when I've, in the past, when I read this passage, people beg Jesus to leave, and he does, and I've always thought it's Jesus basically saying, all right, forget you guys. We're going home. You don't want me around? Have it your way. But something happened this week uh, with my younger son, Matthew, that made me think about that in a different light. You know, my, my, my seven-year-old Isaiah, he's like, a, he's like a daddy's boy. We're, like, we're really close. But Matthew really, he's a mama's boy, and he really he, he wants nothing to do with me. In fact, I think the first two words I ever put, heard him put together, uh, I think it was, Daddy, no. I was like, that's great, but also kind of sad. And... He's always choosing his mom over me, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's kind of hurtful in the moment. But the thing is, the thing is, I pick him up from school almost every day. There he works a little bit later, so I'm the one who goes and picks him up from daycare, rather. And when I pick him up from school, that's one of the happiest times of my week, because it's just me. Jerry's not around. And he just yells, Daddy, and he runs to me, and I get to hold him. I don't hold a grudge. I'm not bitter that he often chooses Dury over me. On the contrary, this past Friday, I was going to go pick him up, and I consciously made the decision. I actually planned this out not to bring the stroller with me to pick him up. Do you know why? So he would let me hold him, because it's so very rare. And the point is this, I may not always be his favorite, but it doesn't change the fact who he is to me and that he's my son. And I think if you look at this passage, this is what's happening. Jesus gets back into the boat, not because he's mad, not because he's bitter, but because he's finding another way. Jesus, think about it, he doesn't let the healed man come with him, even though this man is Begging him, Jesus refuses him. Instead, he sends him back to the town. Why? Because Jesus has another way to reach these people. Because there's people in this town who need his testimony. Jesus doesn't get back into the boat because he's giving up on the garrisons who reject Jesus and beg him to go away. It's because he's going to reach them another way through the testimony of the man that he had saved. And it works. The passage says that they marvel at this even when they had rejected the Savior himself earlier. And I'm going to say to you, even if you've rejected Jesus before in your life, even if you've seen Jesus, but the things in your life had too much of a hold on you and you just basically said, Jesus, I want you to go away, you've refused him and you've decided that you will not go to him. The good news for us is that Jesus is Savior who is actively finding a way to save you 
even in the midst of your rebellion. In closing, have you been under the attack of modern-day demons? Are you yet to be healed? Maybe, may you find the, may you be found exerting the agency because the love of Christ is unstoppable by any force. On the other hand, are you someone for whom the presence of Christ is just too much? It threatens too much the way that you want to live your life. Have you possibly even given up on Jesus? Maybe you've looked straight into this heart of faith and said, no thanks, it's not for me. There's some really good news for you. It's this, that Christ has not given up on you. There's something that might persuade you more than a raw religious confrontation with God, and Christ has taken this into account. And it's this, listen to people's encounters with Christ. Dozens of people here today in this room or in the church universal hear the testimony of the healed and you may find that your fear is replaced with astonishment because the Lord has done much for us and shown us great mercy. Let's pray.